your comfort zone is a lovely place. Mm. Nothing will ever grow there. I've had headhunters say to me, Sophie, if you were a bloke, you'd have been a CEO 10 years ago. It's always the role and never the person that gets made redundant. To whom it may concern, welcome to the podcast, Internet Friends. This is your guide to navigating career milestones and moments of failure as you climb your way to the top, however you define that. What's up, guys? It's Maddie, and I'm really excited to jump into today's conversation. But before I do, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing and joining me on this journey, and together we can learn how to better navigate our careers. Today's guest is an absolute force to be reckoned with. She's had an incredible career spanning almost three decades, working in senior executive and board roles for major companies like Tesco, Boots and Jack Wills. And currently she's the group director for the UK and Ireland at Meta, which is actually where her and I originally met. She's been at the forefront of the digital world since the early days of the internet. So before we were dancing on TikTok or posting full holiday albums to Facebook. As a true pioneer in the field, she has witnessed and been a part of shaping the evolution of the digital landscape. Not only that, but she has managed and led thousands of people throughout her career, doing it by inspiring and motivating with her integrity and kindness. But it doesn't stop there. She is also a fierce advocate for women in the workplace, where she's a LinkedIn top voice for gender equality. And she even hosts her own podcast, Courage is Contagious, where she breaks taboos and smashes stereotypes, particularly around women's um, health and fertility. She defies societal expectations by embracing a life outside of traditional norms, being a child-free woman. Her mission is to create a future where everybody has the freedom to choose their own path. I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest today. Sophie Neary, welcome to To Whom It May Concern. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. I saw um, that you've just been in Morocco. I have, yes. I went on what I thought was going to be a short hike and ended up climbing the second highest mountain in Africa. <laughs> As you do. Which was not, which was not intentional and it was uh, awesomely awful. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I went to uh, Mar- Morocco and did like Marrakesh and Fez um, last year and Honestly, I'm not, I don't know why more people aren't traveling to Morocco. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, Marrakesh was in, absolutely incredible. And the Atlas Mountains are gorgeous, but um, I just wasn't quite prepared for okay. the hike that I did. <laughs> I mean, you are quite an active and adventurous person. So if you can't do it, then God forbid anyone like myself trying. <laughs> um, right. So I wanted to start today's conversation in kind of a similar place. I want to start all of my chats that I have on the podcast. And that's talking about failure. You know, it's often a topic that a lot of people shy away from talking about. However, I think it's, you know, really important for, you know, senior leaders like yourself to be open about this as it begins to help kind of set an example for people like myself or kind of people earlier in their career, like how they should really be thinking about failure. So to start us off, like, so tell me, like, how has your journey defined how you see failure? Uh, I think I've definitely, as I've got older, become much more comfortable with failing. And I think, again, this is one of those things where failure for women is different. And that comes down to competency bias, which is where men are assumed to be competent and women have Mm. to prove it. And there's over 75,000 studies all around the world that have empirically, scientifically proved this is a fact. So when I was younger, and I'm 51 now, um, 
failure was a real problem for me it would keep me up at night Mm. Uh, you know it would give me anxiety it would give me like nervousness in my tummy and if I ever even made the smallest mistake at work I'd be in you know that classic I'm so sorry um you know I've really screwed this up and the moment you start to talk about that a you're listening Mm. so you feel like a failure but b so is everyone else so if you're in a meeting room and you're going I made this mistake doesn't mean you shouldn't own what went wrong but but you rarely hear men talk talk in that way but then as I got older actually I realized that embracing your failures is comes from a position of strength and whilst you should still own up to them and you obviously never I never try and cover anything up that I've done actually I've always learned so much more by screwing something up than I have by Mm. doing something right and I think that's that's the that's the key Everybody feels bad when we screw up because, you know, everybody comes with good intent and wants to do things well. But if you can sort of sit yourself down and give yourself a bit of a talking to and go, what have I learned? And not even how will I stop this from going wrong next time? But what will I do differently next time? How will I make it better next time? And then you put yourself in a positive mind frame rather than a, mm. I've, I've, I've made a mistake. Mm. And it's a, it's, a, you, it's a muscle, you've got to like work at it. But that, those little tricks in terms of how can I make this better next time? What would I do differently next time? Rather than, oh my God, I completely stuffed that up and I'm a disaster. Mm. I think the mindset thing is really important. Like I tend to do that a lot just in terms of like telling myself even just like how good I am at what I do. It's like speak the words in your mind and, and out loud that help to kind of push you in that direction rather than using like vocabulary that is like you say, I failed, I fucked up, like whatever it is. Yeah. <clears throat> so a lot of what we see in the media is kind of the glamour and success stories of entrepreneurship, which is great. But the reality is, you know, not everybody marks that as their definition of, of success, which is a big reason kind of why I wanted to start the podcast. Because for me, something like climbing the corporate ladder and kind of getting to a senior role is something that I feel as successful. You know, as someone like yourself who's had an incredibly successful career on all accounts, I'd love to start with just a brief history lesson. So in kind of CV or kind of resume style, would you just give us a kind of brief view of your career so far? Sure. So I'll I'll say one thing before, before I start with that. And, you know, yes, you know, by no shadow of a doubt, I have definitely been very successful. But if I was a man, I know I would have been even more successful. Mm. And, and we have to, I think it's really important as senior women that we, that we own that and, and that we say that. I'm 51. I've had headhunters say to me, Sophie, if you were a bloke, you'd have been a CEO 10 years ago. <laughs> and that is both painful, but also it's quite nice that people actually can acknowledge that and admit that now. But yeah, I mean, I started my career as a graduate trainee at Reuters back in 1994. And in 1995, Reuters is the largest um, news agency in the world. And in 1995, I was put on this project called The Internet, as in a capital T (laughs) and a capital I. And I was literally like, what the fuck's the internet, right? I mean, I just had up, nobody knew. And anybody who says, oh, we all knew what the internet was going to become clearly is completely lying. But, and I was gutted. I wanted to work on the news because the news was the flagship thing at Reuters. And, um, but you know, sometimes not getting what you want is a wonderful stroke of luck. Because had I not uh, started my career in the internet in 1995, I wouldn't now be working for the biggest social media company in the world with over half of the planet on its platforms. So I think there's a little bit, an early lesson there that make the most of the cards that you've got. So sometimes we get to pick the cards we have in life. Sometimes we get a chance to be dealt a card and go, actually, I don't want that one. I'll, I'll put it back. 
But sometimes you also have to deal with the cards that you're given. Mm. And so I just made the best of the card that I was given. And I, and, I, and I loved it. And I think partly because I was so worried at failing at it. I worked extra hard. I was in the right place at the right time. And I optimized and made the most of that. So from there, I then went into, I did a bit more in what would now be called fintech but obviously that didn't exist as a term <laughs> back then and then I moved more into into consumer and into retail and um I you know I've been really fortunate so I've worked for two internet startups one that was acquired by Google another acquired by Sun Microsystems and I've also worked for some massive you know big international blue chips as well um and before joining Meta I was on the board of Boots in the UK where I ran the biggest health, beauty and well-being website in Britain, the largest uh, dot-com business in the Walgreens Boots Alliance. And, and Walgreens Boots Alliance is a Dow Jones industrial company. You know, its revenues are larger than Meta's. It, it was extraordinary. But I did that because I took a risk. Mm. And I took a risk. And instead of saying, no, I don't want to work on the internet, I'll work on the news. And not all risks work out. And that's fine. But your comfort zone is a lovely place. Mm. Nothing will ever grow there. So if you don't put yourself outside your comfort zone, if you don't take a risk, you, you know, you're, you're never going to really fulfill your potential. Yeah, I think like just on that topic, you know, I know you talk a lot about, you know, the opportunities are there, but it's up to you to kind of recognize those and take those. Yeah. You know, I know in your career, you've obviously done a lot of incredible things. You know, you've also worked in New York. You've taken a gap year off and traveled. I'd love for you to share kind of on that note, like what's one of those kind of bigger moments in your professional career where you did, you know, push yourself outside of your comfort zone, dive headfirst into the unknown. And like consequently, what did you achieve um, by doing so? Yeah, well, let's talk about when I was made redundant because I think probably that's that's a, the best example I've got of that. So I, I worked for Jack Wills, which for... People who don't know is a um, you know a, a mid-market apparel retailer, a bit like a British equivalent of Abercrombie and Fitch. Super cool brand. As a mm. brand, it really punched above its weight. Had stores in America, in the UK, and in Asia. Um, I joined as the MD of online, and then I became their chief customer officer. So looking after everything that the customer touched, and I loved that job. I absolutely loved it. I loved the brand. I loved the company. I loved the people. And in a way, I was far too invested in it, right? I mm. kind of was um, living for work mm. rather than working to live. And a private equity firm took them over. And on Friday, I was told, you know, we can't do this without you. We're going to IPO the company, Sophie. You know, you're a key part of the team that will do that. And on Monday morning, I went into the office and I was told, uh, actually, that's it. You know, we don't, we don't need you anymore. And I couldn't even go back to my desk. I couldn't say goodbye to my team. I, I was absolutely yeah. heartbroken. And I remember I got the train back from Wilsdon Junction, which is where the office was with my little dog, because um, she used to come to work with me. Mm. And, I, and I was sitting on the tube and someone actually tapped me on the shoulder and said, are you okay? Because well. that was obviously, I wasn't crying, but obviously that was how completely devastated I, I, I must have looked. And I went home and I, and I felt like an absolute failure. I was about 43, 44 years old. I was on the board of a company. I'd done everything that I'd ever wanted to do. Like, all I'd ever want to do was be on the board of a company that I really enjoyed working at. So I was like, well, now what do I do? And I spoke to a couple of headhunters. They were like, get back in the game. You know, you're, you're right at the pinnacle of your career. You've got this digital experience. That's fantastic. But I was just done. Hmm. I was just done. I was, I just fell out of love with work because it was an integrity thing. Hmm. And, um, there's one thing that has always, always stuck with me 
is that when the person who uh, told me that I was being made redundant, he never said thank you. And I, that really hurt. Mm. He said, I respect you for your integrity, blah, 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 blah. But he never said thank you. And I thought, I've given you two years of my life. I worked so hard for this company. And uh, that was a really good lesson for me. And, you know, I've, I'd made people redundant before then. I've made people redundant since. And it's always, I always make sure that I say thank you now. But so I went home. I felt terrible. Felt like a total failure. And a really good friend of mine said, why don't you have some time out? And I was like, I can't have any time out. I've just been made redundant. I need to get a job. Oh, and I just literally about to pay a deposit on a new, my dream little like tiny muse house in Notting Hill. And of course, I couldn't go ahead with that because yeah. I didn't have a job anymore. I wasn't going to have a mortgage. So my whole life just suddenly, just literally was turned on its head. And... Um, and after about two weeks of looking um, on Instagram and, you know, motivational quotes and, uh, you know, that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, enough of feeling sorry for myself now. And um, I thought I am going to have some time out because I was on six months gardening leave anyway. And I'd always wanted to learn to kite surf. And I had some really good friends uh, in Tarifa. And I thought, right, I'm going to take my little dog, Tiggy, and we're going to go and we're going to learn to kite surf in Tarifa. So I went to Tarifa, learned to kite surf. Tiggy learned to speak doggy Spanish. <laughs> and we just had the best time. And from there, I then went hiking in Nepal. And I did a sort of really incredible two-month hike in Nepal. Um, visited Everest Base Camp. Did all of the super cool stuff there. Was hiking in the Alps. And then I did a ski season in Chamonix because I'd always wanted to do a ski season. And I'd never done that either. And at the end of that year... I was cleverer than I'd ever been before. My brain was completely rested. But really importantly, I was really clear on what I wanted to do next. And even more importantly, I was clear on what I wasn't going to do next. Mm. And I got, and I, again, I was, had that slight moment of no one's going to want me. I've had a year out. No one knows who I am anymore. I'm irrelevant. I cannot tell you how many phone calls I got. Wow. It was, it was incredible. From the likes of Condé Nast, from Harrods, from, you know, really incredible organizations. And Boots came knocking, and I was like, well, I've never done health and beauty before. Kind of fancy giving that a twirl. Yeah. And, and I went from Jack Wills, a middle, you know, middling, pretty decent, but middle, middle of the road retailer, to being on the board. Top. Of the, Top. you know, if Boots was a FTSE 100, if Boots was on the FTSE, it would be a FTSE 100 retailer, to an £8 billion revenue company. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So they, did to have me, a gap year. <laughs> they did me a giant favor and I've never seen the founder of Jack Will since, but one day I know I will see him and I will give him a big hug and say thank you. Yeah. And I will also tell him he still owes me a thank you. Yeah. I mean, that just goes back to like your character, right? Because like as soon as you said that, I was picturing that episode of Sex and the City where Charlotte sees Mr. Big after like he's divorced from Carrie and she, she's like, I cast the day you were born. Like that's what I pictured when you were saying that. <laughs> Not like you wanted to give him a big hug and thank you. Um, well, he did, he did me a huge favour. Yeah, yeah, completely. And then from Boots to Matter. And all the way up. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So something um, that, you know, we don't tend to think about as people kind of earlier on in our career is that, like, when we're grinding, that careers are actually really long. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint or so, like, you know, we're told. But I know myself, like, I'm constantly chasing, like, the next biggest and best thing. Like, what can I achieve next? Um, 
In terms of like yourself, like how have you managed to maintain momentum throughout your career and like reinvent yourself at kind of each stage or each chapter or even each role to be able to continue to push and, and kind of not find yourself kind of floundering in kind of, you know, in the middle kind of area? Yeah, that, I mean, that's such a good question. And um, I think there's slightly two sides to it. So when I first started working, I started my career, I was earning 17000 500 pounds. Wow. And all I wanted to do, and I was 22 years old, all I wanted to do was earn my age in my salary. So all I wanted <laughs> to do was earn 22,000 pounds. And when I was 23, I did that. So I I, I, start, I think I was 22 when I first started working for Reuters and um, 20, 23, 24, I, I achieved it. And then I was like, oh, now, okay, well, now I've done that. Now what am I going to do? And then I was like, well, you know, I'll try and double it and then, and then treble it. And then I realised, actually, that was quite easy to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I had always, you know, there's classic, I hate those interview questions, you know, wh- where are you going to be in five years' time? Well, doing your job yeah. should be the answer, right? <laughs> but um, I, I think I've always been, if I'd have ever set myself a goal, I probably would have not achieved my full potential because mm. I would never dared have dreamed that I would be as successful as I have been. So I think you've got to be really careful when you set yourself goals, particularly for women, that we're not setting ourselves mm, limiting limiting self-limiting beliefs you know the sky isn't the limit your belief system is that I really yeah, really believe I really believe that and so um I think partly because I get bored really easily <laughs> I've always changed jobs a lot and that can be a strength but like a strength it can also be a mm. weakness because literally if you look at my CV I've changed jobs on average about every three years mm. and now some companies don't like that but I'm totally cool with that because I am like a turnaround person. I come in, I fix problems, I get businesses that were in decline or flatlining back into growth. That's like my superpower. And I'm not good at the BAU. Mm. I get bored at the BAU. Agreed. And so you've sort of got to be really clear on what what your skill set and what your passion is. And I also want to really acknowledge here that this will be very different for women who have children or women who who want to have children because they're changing every three years, whether we like it or not. Mm. You know, we know there is a massive motherhood penalty. And, uh, you know, Meta is an incredible organisation in that it does actually employ women who are pregnant. Mm. I've never heard of any other company that does that. So you've also got to think about what's the stage of the life that you're in? What are your overall goals as, as a woman? And, you know, we do have to think about motherhood in a way that obviously men don't. So there may well be a phase in in one's career where actually you do intentionally stay at a company for longer um, because that that is the time that you want to sort of start and grow your family. And that's totally cool as well, Mm. obviously. So you've got to, when you think about what your goals are, we do need to plan ahead a bit more than our male colleagues have to. And that's fine because, you know, there's no way of getting around that. Um, but but I would I would just really um, invite everyone to be really mindful of that. But also, you know, it's it used to be that you stayed with one company for life. Like all my f- my friends' dads all worked for the same company for like thirty five years. That just doesn't happen anymore. Totally. And actually, I think if you stay at a company for too long, it's actually dangerous. Detrimental. Because yeah, you get you get stuck. You get too ingrained in that company. That company's way of working, and you don't bring bring best practices. Like, how do you know what good looks like if you've been in that company totally. for too long? I think it's like so important to because. Again, like I'm similar to you um, a bit, a lot earlier in my career, but I have, since I've lived in the UK for almost four years, I've had four jobs, right? And like 
moving obviously countries, I had to like find my feet and kind of find the right role. And, and now I'm in a stage where I'm 30 and I'm starting to think about exactly what you said. Like I need to consider what the next five years looks like in terms of like personal life, but also from where am I going to work? What's going to give me the best kind of maternity leave policy? So it is, yeah, it is quite difficult to kind of plan too far ahead, but yeah, I like that kind of sentiment particularly for a lot of women, it can be quite difficult to move into kind of from middle to upper management into those kind of board C-suite executive roles. You know, I know personally, like I said, for me, like my goal is CMO, like that's what I want to achieve. And when I achieve that, that's that's what you will achieve. Yeah, that is what I will achieve. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about like your experience kind of getting to that level. Like what do you think are actually the factors that have helped you to achieve success at that level? I mean, I'd like to say it was easy, but it wasn't. And if we go back to what I said at the beginning, yeah. you know, if, if I was a bloke, I would have been a CEO 10 years ago and I'm still not a CEO. So um, I had to really fight for it. And you ha- I had to ask for it in a way that I don't think men do. And that's really hard because then you get all of the memes and the tropes about being a pushy woman or mm. being a difficult woman. Which will definitely come on to Yeah. So um, I've had to be better than my male counterparts at what, at what I've done, for sure. And I've had to be really mindful and intentional about saying, I want a seat at the table. And you've got to find allies. And you don't always find allies mm. because sometimes the men feel threatened by you. But also we've got to be clear here, sometimes the women feel threatened by you totally, as well. Totally, totally. And so for me, one of the things that I try and do always is now that I've kind of, you know, really had to in some way smash through that glass ceiling, I always make sure I send the lift back down with the door open for everyone else. And I think that's really, really important. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I wish I had like, you know, the golden nugget or the silver bullet that said, you know, these are the magic words that will help you get to the C-suite. It's hard work. It's a lot of graft. Whether we like it or not, we've got to be better than the men. Um, But things are changing Mm. and things are definitely better now. I do believe that you are probably more likely to get onto the C-suite if if that's what you want to do by leaving the company you're currently in and going to a new company and joining at the C-suite. What I wouldn't personally ever accept is if a company said, well, you know, this is a C-suite potential role. Because it never happens. Interesting. They say that to get you in and then no one ever leaves the board and and then there'll always be a reason why you, why you don't go there. So I that would be my one piece of advice. And now I might be speaking really unfairly on behalf of some companies, but on the whole, I have found that organisations that promise, that dangle the C-suite carrot, but you're not quite there yet. So, you know, we'll bring you in. If you really want that C-suite role and you know that you're there, wait for it that know your worth incredibly powerful I think like I didn't even have anything to say to that because I'm like that that metaphor around like sending the lift back down is like like it's such a powerful image I think women you know there's this whole thing about women helping women but like you say often the women are also just as jealous as what the men are of you and they you know you're you're fighting against each other I think I've definitely had experiences like that I've also been really lucky to work with incredible people but yeah, I think, wow, I'm just, yeah, I'm definitely taking that away. Um, kind of in a similar note, you know, you have been quoted to say something which I absolutely love. And that is, I became the managing director my father wanted me to marry. 
And I know you're also very open around the idea of pregnant than screwed and kind of to the conversation that we've been having. I'd love to hear your perspective on how you think not having a child has shaped your career, um, particularly when it comes to accessing these kind of top board roles. Yeah. I think there's, there's, there's two things to reflect on there. So the first is, you know, for me, not having children is definitely part of my identity. And I've had to own it because there's such a stigma around it. Right. So you either let it define you or you define and own it. And part of that reason is because people are mean. Right. And they say things like, well, you know, she's too successful Mm. to have found a partner or, you know, quite unthinkable things like, you know, aren't you worried about being lonely because you don't have children? I mean, can you imagine? Like it's my life. Imagine saying that. Um, And I think what is amazing now for women and one of the reasons I don't have children is because, uh, uh, you know, when I was in my early 30s, I just wasn't in a relationship with someone I wanted to have a child with. I think what is great now is that it's very socially acceptable to be a solo mum by choice. Like we have, we have quite a few of those at Meta. And I think that's amazing. And the fact, you know, in my generation, it was not acceptable to have a baby on your own. It was, there would have been a real stigma around it. And it, I think it would have been really hard for me to then go back to work and to get a job. And, you know, being a solo mum by choice obviously is a lot harder mm. than, than being in a relationship with someone where you can co-parent. I'm slightly sidetracking, but I just wanted to sort of address that. But I think um, the, 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 the point for me around not having children is, again, breaking these memes and these stereotypes that the only reason a woman is on this planet is to become a mother. Yeah. Which is bollocks, mm. right? Yes, of course, it's important. However, you, we can either accept that motherhood is an extension of womanhood rather than what defines it and I think that's what's really important and about I think now in the UK about 32% of women don't and won't have children some of that by choice some of that not by choice and you know that's too big a cohort to be overlooked and ignored and and the final point which is really important to acknowledge and this is the really difficult one which is that there's also a club that no woman would ever choose to join which is the childless not by choice yeah Right. So a woman who wants to have a child and by, you know, the cruel twist of mother nature isn't able to do so. Imagine if you're one of those women and someone says to you, oh, you know, aren't you Mm. worried about being lonely or, you know, get a puppy, get a puppy and you'll get pregnant. It's so thoughtless. Um, And these are all this is all emotional tax and emotional labor that that women have to carry that on the whole men don't. Yes, of course, men have to worry about fertility if they they're trying for a baby with their partner. But but these are things that are central to being a woman that we have it's like white noise that we are just expected to sort of suck up and deal with every single day Mm. and and that's an extra you know emotional and intellectual and a psychological weight that men don't have to carry I slightly sidetracked them but that's okay I've answered the question yeah yeah, I love it but but for me it's also very important to speak up about women who are mothers because it is about sending the elevator back down. And it's about, you know, I've got a platform. I've got a voice. People listen to me. I don't just want to stick up for women who don't have children. I want to stick up for all women. Mm. You know, we, a rising tide floats all boats. Mm. And we've, we've got to all come together in how we, you know, address the massive um, imbalance that there is in the world. And I'm so tired of women fighting against each other because that's not where the battle is. The battle is... Unfortunately, it is still a battle with the patriarchy. Mm. And all we're asking for is equal rights. 
Right? That is all, all we're, we're asking, asking for. for. You know, if we wanted divine retribution, we'd be asking for 3,000 years God of a matriarchy. Forbid. All we want is equal rights, yeah. right? That's all we're asking for. Yeah. That's why I think it's so important to for women to be able to access these board level positions so they can from the top down be filtering through the right message around you know if you are pregnant and you are going on maternity leave it isn't you know a tax to your career it is just something that has to happen to keep you know society moving in the way that it's moving so to speak um so we've we've chatted through you know quite a lot about you know the incredible career you've had so far the different chapters from your early days at Reuters to you know obviously currently working at at Meta. Um, I wanted to take this opportunity to be like a little bit selfish and kind of ask you some of the burning questions that I have for someone in your position, and I'm sure everybody listening can hopefully kind of relate to in terms of how to navigate their career. So to start off, um, it's one that's like a little bit personal to me and something that we've also already talked about, and that's redundancy. Um, as you know, I was made redundant from my, what I would say is my dream role from Meta at the end of last year. And it was personally one of the hardest moments in my adult life so far. I think exactly what you're saying. I think so much of my identity was tied into who I am at work and what I'm achieving. So for that to kind of almost change overnight, it was a huge kind of, you know, thing in the dark like not to mention the months on months I spent interviewing and and subsequent rejections and obviously thank goodness I currently have now got a job which is amazing shout out tinder um so as someone who's been through it in the past and you know being there's so a joke about swiping right there isn't there but I'm not clever enough (laughs) we love a pun um yeah someone who's been through in the past and obviously being a part of the tech industry at the moment which we know is going through a huge period of kind of uncertainty and so many companies are doing mass layoffs what is your advice for people like myself or people that are going through it at the moment um, for navigating that period yeah so first of all it's okay to feel sad about stuff that's sad right so if you're not disappointed when you're made redundant then that means that you didn't really care about your job Mm. so it's definitely a good thing that it's happened but I think most people would feel disappointed and I include myself in that uh, about being made redundant because it's a choice that's being taken away from you so I like to look at it as a difference between change making you can decide to take agency over your career you can decide to apply for another job to leave a job go to the gym etc etc that's change making change facing is when something happens to you that you don't have agency to change you couldn't say to meta actually no I don't want you to make redundant that's rejected I'm staying yeah I, I I reject your redundancy proposal um and so first of all, you know, a bit like I did when I was made redundant from Jack Wills, you've, you've got to let, I mean, there's a bit of grief there, right? You've, and you've got to let that emotion come through. But what you've got to also try and do is not wallow at the bottom of that, mm. you know, that kind of trough of, of sort of self, self-pity. Because whether we like it or not, being made redundant is definitely going to be a part of modern life. Right, so you're probably going to live till you're 110. Hope so. You're going to be working till you're probably 80. Most people now, mm. whereas in the olden days, you know, you started work at 19, 20, you retired at 60, you died at 70. That doesn't happen anymore. So you're going to have multiple careers throughout your career. The job you end up doing probably doesn't even exist today, and it's going to be very normal to be made redundant. And I think that's what we need to get over. So how do we normalise this as part of a career? And there's still a bit of a stigma with it. And I see this with my colleagues at Meta right now, and we're going through another, you know, enormous amount um, of people losing their jobs. 
And and you can see a real difference in the people who've been through it before mm. and the people for whom this is a first time. So when it's your first time, you have to sort of say to myself, this is hard because it's never happened to me before. But I know this is part of life. Yeah. This And my one mantra that I say to everyone, I'm pretty sure I must have said it to you and I put it on LinkedIn at the time, it's always the role and never the person that gets made redundant. And that's, you know, back to that muscle. That's what you've got to tell yourself. It is a business decision. You are a number in a spreadsheet and that's all it is. Yeah, and I, I did read that on your LinkedIn at the time and every interview that I went into when I was asked, like, what's my current position? I was like, my role and my team and my like division that I was in was all made redundant. Like it was sunsetted, you know, like making sure that people, I was also speaking the language, but they were also listening to the language that wasn't like there was something wrong with me. Cause inherently I think in people's heads, even though we understand redundancies, yeah. a business decision, I think you still had that shadow of doubt, like, Oh, was it them or was it like the role? So yeah, I definitely like that rings true. And that is something that stuck yes. with me. Like, yeah. Good. And, and, and again, I just re-emphasize that. So if you are made redundant and then you're going for a job interview, um, you don't say I was made redundant. You say the role that I was in due to circumstances beyond my control was made redundant. Fact. And you don't explain anything else because you don't need to explain anything else because that is what happened. Yeah, that is chef's kiss of a soundbite, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so moving on, um, something that we kind of briefly touched on in this conversation already, um, I know you've been really vocal on this topic in terms of in your podcast and on LinkedIn, is that often women aren't treated the same when it comes to, you know, culture, culturally, you know, we think that women should be nice, should be gentle, should take care of people. But when you go and defy that norm, you're often branded as bossy or yeah. other words. And, you know, when that behavior is exhibited in men, it is often seemed as acceptable and normal. You know, I've personally had an incredibly shitty experience with this. I was, went in, I, I was asking for a pay rise. I went in with a really rational justification as to why that should happen. And instead I was told that my tone was too aggressive. And when in actual fact, I was just speaking with a really direct tone because I was talking about my financial future, which is something that it's, it needs to be taken seriously and is important. Yeah. So it was utter bullshit to be told that I was aggressive. As someone who has worked in male-dominated industries and male-dominated roles, what's been your experience with navigating these labels and kind of what's your advice for someone um, experiencing them in their workplace? Yeah. Well, you know, the sad thing is that, is that they still exist. There's that classic meme, you know, what's the difference between being assertive and aggressive? Mm. Your gender, <laughs> right? So... I have been told ever since I was a young person that I'm aggressive, too assertive, bossy, uh, difficult. And I've sort of gone full circle on this. So about sort of eight or nine years ago, I used to get really cross that people still called me that. But then when I was at Boots, I sort of turned it into my soundbite because I would go, I'm not a bossy Boots. I'm the boss of Boots.com. Love that. So that worked <laughs> really well. And, and I do actually find that making a joke about it can sometimes work. So you, you've got to kind of, if you can use humour rather than um, trying to make someone feel bad about the fact that they've unconsciously given you a label. Because on the whole, I think people are genuinely good. I don't think people genuinely, you know, unconscious bias, it, 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 it is huge. I mean, I've had lots of bias against me, both conscious and unconscious. But I do think on the whole, you've got to assume good intent to start with. And... 
So, you know, if someone was to say to me right now, well, I think you're being a bit aggressive, Sophie, I'd go, aha, but, you know, what's the difference between aggressive and assertive? Ba-boom, it's your gender. Yeah. And try and make a bit a bit lighthearted so you're not... Because sometimes, you know, we shouldn't... No one should ever have to diminish themselves, right? And I see a lot of women doing that. Oh, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be assertive. You know, bollocks to that, mm. right? But I think use I have found using humour as a way to diffuse that... Um, can sometimes be helpful um but I think but now I so now I've gone full circle on it and now I go I'm a difficult woman yes go the bossy women go the difficult women go the aggressive women because that means we're doing something right yeah it means it means you're being noticed uh, but it also means we're behaving like men yeah we're behaving like leaders we're behaving like people who can make a decision and who can lead companies and make make difficult decisions and prioritize well but also in a way that's that can bring people with them and I you know I look I look around at some of the most incredible women that I see and that I look up to and I I think I look at them and you know there's two sort of factors to it one behind every strong woman is an army of other women lifting lifting them up not always the case but that should be true but the other thing I really believe is that behind every strong woman is a story that's given her no choice but to be strong we have to overcome so much more just because we're women so again back to that point of know your worth that that classic meme you know you're smarter than you think you're stronger than you believe you're I can't remember the third thing of course you are you've had to be because you're a woman Mm. so when people call you aggressive inside you think great I'm doing something right yeah that's good and I also think the humor thing like leaves a bigger mark on someone let's say it's a man that you're saying it back to than you getting aggressive because as soon as you start getting aggressive back they shut down so making kind of a light-hearted joke they in my opinion, would probably resonate a little bit more with them to kind of leave, yeah. a, leave something with them. So when it comes to negotiating your salary, whether that's for the job that you're in or the job that you're, you know, you've been offered, it's always super daunting. I mean, I just went through this, this process myself. And I know that between my friends and I, you know, we often talk about our own experiences and how it definitely feels like one of those things in your career where you're pretty much in the dark without the tools. You know, I definitely feel like it's something that should be taught at like such a younger age because like until you have to push yourself into that situation, you don't really know how to do it. And it's particularly if you're not a confident person or you're super early in your career, when it comes to doing this, it can be really uncomfortable. So as someone who's undoubtedly asked for many pay rises or, you know, equally been on the receiving end of people asking for pay rises, what are your kind of golden rules for prepping for this conversation? And also like, how do you navigate the combo? Yeah. Great question. Really important question, because as we know, there is still a gender pay gap, right? Fact. So I did a video actually on this and it's on my, on my LinkedIn and also on my Courage is Contagious Instagram page, which is, um, talks about the different lines that you can use. And the first thing I would say is be confident in that there's power in having stuff written down. Don't feel like if you're doing this face to face that you can't take in a piece of paper with you because actually that demonstrates that you've thought ahead. Mm. It demonstrates that you're well prepared. And it's, this is intimidating for everyone, right? It's intimidating at my level and I've been working for 30 years. So of course it's going to be not necessarily easy for someone who's 22 and doing this for the first time. So know that that's okay. Know that your voice might wobble. That's okay because, because you care, right? So you dig your feet into the ground or you, so, you, know, you clench your fist, you do whatever it is that kind of gives you a bit of, a bit of courage there. And um, first of all, the, no one should ever ask you what your current package is. 
right? That's really bad practice. And But lots of companies still do that. And companies still ask me that now. So I always smile, you know, start with a smile. And I write that on the top of my piece of paper, even if it's really annoying what they're asking, you say smile. <laughs> because then when you smile, you sound, you sound, you sound um, you know, more, more warm and more engaging. And you say, it would be helpful for me to understand what the salary and the overall package is for this role. And just on that note, I think I saw that on your LinkedIn too yeah. when I was doing my interviewing and that massively helps because it instantly deflected and either they came back and was like, oh, here's the salary range or they were like, oh, we can pick this conversation up later. And it was such an easy way for me to be like, at the end of the day, like what I'm doing now is different to what I'm interviewing for. Like it shouldn't be compared Exactly, exactly. And, um, and then the other thing that, that you can say, again, when if, in a way of making light of it, is if they start being funny about that, you can say, well, you know, one of the reasons, as, as I'm sure you know, um, is as a woman, I'm very conscious of the fact that overall women do get paid less than men. And the gender pay gap in your company is whatever it is, right? Because it's public knowledge, you just look it up, they have to disclose it as long as they've got over 250 employees. So I'm, I'm just, as I'm sure we all are, really keen to make sure that that gap gets closed as fast as possible and that I am paid what this role is worth and for the value that I will bring to the company. So I will never tell anyone now what I get paid. Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to. And they shouldn't be asking you. It's really bad practice to ask you. And sometimes they try and get around it by saying, well, we would just want to make sure that we don't give you an offer that's, you know, insulting. And you go, that's fine. I'll tell you if it is. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, not a problem. Not a problem. And a, a lot of companies now actually are starting to move. And there's a big, a big amount of pressure. And I see this lot on LinkedIn to say, to actually publish what the salary bracket and the bound is for the role. Yeah. And then the other thing that I would also say is, Again, particularly in Britain, I think less so in the States, we don't talk what, about what we get paid with our peers. Yes. And I understand why. And, it, and, you know, it can cause massive problems, but maybe we should start. And I am such an advocate for that. Like, especially when I got my job at Facebook, Meta, sorry, I tripled my salary to what I was on before. Mm. And a lot of my friends also work in marketing. And I was the first person to say to them, this is what I've just achieved. Like I am no different. Yeah. Maybe I'm more driven and more passionate, but I'm no different to you. We're at the same level. You need to know that that salary is out there because otherwise you're going to be stuck earning shit money yeah. for, you know, the next couple of years. Like you need to go out there and do it. And I think I've, I always am so forthcoming with that information because I just feel like it's actually helped so many of my friends as well. Like personally to to be able to compare yeah. and contrast um, and just understand like what, what, what companies are paying. Something else that just in terms of like that conversation, things that I always do is like, I always try to remember like, number one, everybody for on the most part is uncomfortable talking about money and to having that conversation. So like, it's really just that like 30 second moment where you're delivering that line Absolutely. where you say, this is the money that I want that is going to be the most uncomfortable. So kind of sit with that. And the second is, no one looks out for your financial future like you do. So like, unless you ask the question, they aren't going to come to you and miraculously offer you a 10,000 pound pay rise. You have to go and do that yourself. So I think the worst you can hear is no, but the best that can happen is you get it. But other than that, you're on the radar. They know that you're, you want more money and you're uncomfortable where you're at yeah. the moment. So it's really, it's really important. I think that I love talking about money. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of coming to the end um, and I want to finish the conversation kind of flipping the first, first question on its head a little bit. Across, you know, 
almost 30 years of your career, no doubt what you deem as success has changed. So I'd love to understand from you what success looks like for you now versus say 10 years ago or even in the early stages of your career. Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I think definitely working to live is is more important for me now than, than ever. So I'm 52 next month and um, I don't want to work forever. So I feel like I've got one big job left in me and then I'll probably do more sort of plural, uh, plural roles. Um, and I'd like to do a, a bit more um, sort of with particularly around um, supporting women in the workplace, whether that's with a charity or, or continuing with Courage is Contagious. But for me... I mean, you know, personally, I've had a, a, an incredibly, incredibly hard couple of years. My sister died of COVID. Um, she was only 51, so I'm, I'm going to be older than my big sister this year. That was awful. And my dad died earlier this year. So I've lost half of my family in, in two years. And that's that's been really, really horrendous to deal with. And I've been sadder than I ever thought it was possible to be. And at the same time, I got to live right? I got to live and my sister didn't. And for me, it's therefore so important to like live the best life that I possibly can and to help as many people as I possibly can, because she didn't sadly get, get that chance to do that. And you, you realize when you go through redundancies, when you go through really, those really difficult things in life that, you know, it is, it is just a job. It is just a job. And yes, it matters. I'm not trying to say it doesn't matter. And as a woman who's been pretty much single for my whole adult life, it matters because I haven't got anyone else that I can share a mortgage with. I haven't got anyone else, um, you know, to do all the paperwork when my sister died. Uh, you know, I've had to do it all on my own. And, um, and, you know, without being successful and having, you know, financial stability, I wouldn't have been able to do some of the things that I've been able to do. Take my gap year, for, for example. So I'm not trying to diminish that having a job isn't, isn't important and being paid what you're worth is, is really important. But it is, it is also, you know, you only get one crack at life. So if you really hate your job, for God's sakes, just leave. Because mm. it is just a job. And there are millions of jobs out there and there are jobs out there that we don't even know exist yet. So, so I would say to anyone who's sort of sitting thinking, I, I don't leave, I don't leave because, you know, I do have rent to pay. And I, I obviously completely respect that. Um, also, just know that there are a gazillion other things out there and that if you don't even try, you will always fail. So it's all I think it's always better to try and to give something your best shot because there's, there's always an option B. There's always, always an option B. And I, I thought on my gap year, well, if I need to, I'll just go stack shelves in Tesco for a bit. If I, you know, if I kind of run out of money and I need, you know, to buy Tiggy's dog food or whatever, I, I, you know, I don't care. I don't, have a, I don't have an ego about stuff like that. But I think really understanding what's important to you in life, and it will be different at different stages of your life, but don't compromise on that. Figure out what you want and say no to everything else that isn't that. But whatever it is, we, you know, particularly women, we always, I think, we worry too much about what could go wrong rather than what can go right. So I would always say to everyone, you know, if you're worried about starting a podcast, start the podcast anyway. If you're worried about writing the blog post, write the blog post anyway. If you're worried about, you know, going for a job and you might not get the, get the, get the job, go for the interview anyway. Because what is the worst that can happen? That's amazing. Sophie Neary, before we wrap up, 
tell me what is next for you what is your next big milestone what are you working towards god you know i kind of have no idea (laughs) um my next big milestone um well it has to be what's the next job right um and i'm really intentful and purposeful around that um so i don't know what it is um maybe it's at meta maybe it's not at meta time will tell watch this space but yeah i feel like i've got one big job left in me beautiful thank you thank you so much There's you're welcome thanks for having really me. great nuggets of information and like just kind of mantras to kind of repeat to yourself from the redundancy piece to you know sending the elevator back down i think i am going to be sitting with a lot of those quotes for the rest of the day and kind of mulling over them so thank you so much for coming on the podcast i thanks, really Maddie. appreciate it Shout out to everyone for listening to today's episode of To Whom It May Concern with Sophie Neary. If you like what you heard from her, you can listen to her own podcast, Courage is Contagious. I'm going to leave the link to it in the show notes. As always, if you liked our conversation, please consider subscribing and joining me on this journey. And together we can learn how to better navigate our careers. You can catch up on all episodes of the podcast in all of the places you expect to find podcasts. But if you're also like me and you like YouTube content, you can find it there too. Join me on Instagram at to whom it may concern pod and you can catch up on bonus content, episode release dates and also join the conversation with me. Everything will be linked in the show notes. Until next time, kind regards, Maddie Riley.